This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, earlier this year, a report from the Defense Intelligence Agency found that America's two biggest adversaries are accelerating their military space capabilities. And over the last several years, China has tried to increase its influence in the Pacific. Now the U.S. is taking new steps to counter China's ambitions. Then, efforts are underway to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. A researcher from the National Institute of Standards and Technology talks about the role the agency plays in cleaning up the environment. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Both Russia and China are dramatically increasing their space assets. John Huth is a defense intelligence officer for space and counterspace within the Defense Intelligence Agency. John, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So you first started publishing this report, which is called Challenges in Security in Space Report, back in 2019. Since then, what have been the major changes? So since 2019, uh, there have been dramatic changes. Russia and China have increased their on-orbit assets by about 70% over the last two years. Uh, in the report, we talk about uh, things such as Russia and China's increase in uh, space domain awareness capabilities, their counterspace capabilities, as well as their efforts to look to the moon and beyond what they what they plan to do there and then we've also have an expanded uh, portion on the impacts of space debris so before we get into those details which which i do want to touch on um you know since the report came out russia invaded ukraine wh how, what do we know about how um, satellite capabilities have been used for the war so uh the most dramatic ones and uh you see on the news every night, probably, uh, the United States' imagery capabilities. Uh, you see pictures from Maxar, uh, Planet Labs, and other places that have been used to provide uh, context of what's happening on the ground uh, day in and day out. But what about Russia? How have they used their satellite capabilities? So uh, we haven't, uh, you know, I, I can't talk in detail about what Russia's done. Clearly from the report and what you'll find in the report, things like their electronic warfare capabilities, they have a lot of those. Uh, their counterspace capabilities beyond that, uh, we haven't uh, really seen a whole lot in that regard. So I wonder about China and if they've changed their approach in space since that war in Ukraine started. So uh, although it seems like it's been a long time since the war started, uh, as far as any indications of how that might have changed uh, China's perspective regards space, it'd be really too early to tell. What we do know about China is just as I mentioned with the US and our commercial space capabilities, China is launching, has been launching at least for the last several years, a number of satellites uh, to collect imagery from space and uh, be a competitor with the U.S. in the commercial markets. And in this year alone, we expect them to launch around 50 satellites for those purposes. You know, both China and Russia publicly say that they're against the weaponization of space. 
Do their actions reflect those beliefs? Uh, absolutely not. And again, as you'll find in DIA's report, uh, both this one and the previous one, uh, both Russia and China have and continue to develop a variety of counter space capabilities to deny space or the use of space to the United States and our allies. And how do their capabilities compare to the U.S.'s capabilities? Where are they in that continuum? So uh, at DIA, we don't really do what we would call a, a net assessment or a, a red-blue comparison. Our focus is really on the capabilities of the of threats and the growing threats. And what we do with that information is we inform our policymakers, our warfighters, and our acquisition professionals on that threat so they can consider those as they develop those policies or build those systems to, uh, to address the, the threats. So new to this year's report is a section on Russia and China's exploration of uh, the moon and Mars. Is there any indication that they might be using that exploration for anything beyond scientific research? So right now what we see is scientific research, but we also know both uh, Russia and China in particular uh, really leverage what they call dual-use capabilities or military-civil integration. Uh, so that's something we're certainly going to keep an eye on as they evolve in what they are doing uh, scientifically, because we've seen them take uh, capabilities in other domains and leverage those things that might be more civilian focused uh, into uh, military capabilities. Your report also mentions Iran and North Korea. What do we know about their um, the threats coming from those two? So Iran and North Korea, a lot of their focus has really been on, uh, I'll say, space launch, uh, projecting power through uh, being able to deliver uh, weapons. So those technologies that can be used for space launch for peaceful purposes can just as equally be used, again, in a dual-use role to apply to delivery of ICBMs or delivery of counter space capabilities to orbit. And is there anything that the U.S. needs to do to ramp up in response to the threats that you outlined in the report? So I think we've seen the U.S. ramp up. Uh, certainly we now have a space command. We now have a new space force. And uh, I think the U.S. has responded to, to those threats. John, tell me about the mission of DIA and how um, this Office of Space and Counterspace fit into the larger mission. Sure. So DIA's role is really to provide military intelligence to our warfighters, our policy customers, as well as our acquisition customers to help inform those, uh, those decisions that they are going to make in, in, those, uh, in those respective areas. Uh, the Office of Space and Counterspace, I'll say, is a microcosm of that, where we provide uh, foreign, uh, uh, foreign threat information on those space and counterspace capabilities as they evolve, and again, to inform those decisions. And we also work with uh, customers across the globe to uh, work on issues that are of common interest both to us and our, uh, our partner nations. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for coming in. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Later on Government Matters, government researchers are working on a way to better cut down on carbon in the atmosphere. But straight ahead, the U.S. is working to lessen China's influence in the Pacific. We'll be right back. For the first time, the U.S. is holding a Pacific Island Country Summit. This comes after a recent increase in China's outreach to Pacific nations. 
Kiyoki Jackson is the Senior Vice President and General Manager from MITRE's National Security Sector. Kiyoki, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. What is uh, China's partnership strategy when it comes to alliances? Mimi, it's a great question. And I think we should be clear that uh, while the U.S. has allies, uh, in general, China has clients. And if you look at their strategy, they're basically making investments through the One Belt, One Road, and similar initiatives to be able to put in place influence. And what that leads to then often is control, uh, particularly over technology and critical infrastructure, as well as strings attached, like having to allow basing of Chinese forces. So that's very much China's strategy. Our strategy needs to combat that. I was going to ask you about our strategy. We, we've got a, a distance disadvantage because we're not there. So how should the Pentagon respond? Well, the reality is for many, many years, decades, uh, the U.S. and countries like Australia and New Zealand have been some of the biggest partners and allies to nations in the Pacific. Uh, so we need to reinvigorate those alliances. And there's a few things that we can do. We need to recognize that there are real and deep needs, and we need to be listening intently to what those needs are. We need to demonstrate consistent and sustained partnership, and that's things like capital investment, humanitarian aid, and clearly security assistance, uh, including things like cyber capacity building. And this is when you say operationalize the alliances, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, we, have, we need to realize that we are being put to a very public test today. We're out there with things like our Indo-Pacific strategy, the AUKUS agreement, that's Australia, UK, and United States, uh, the Quad, and the an Indo-Pacific economic framework for partnership. So now we need to, dis to actually demonstrate real results. When I talk about interoperability on the military front, that means showing that our systems our practices, our processes are interoperable in a joint and allied way. We need to show that in things like exercises and we need to demonstrate our resolve. You know, the U.S. is a democracy. China is not, not to state the yeah. obvious. But when it comes to modernizing weapons and systems, is the U.S. at a disadvantage? So China does have some advantages. Clearly, with a totalitarian system, they are able to direct and marshal the resources of the entire government and their entire private sector. Uh, we need to recognize that the U.S. has some very strong advantages as well. We've demonstrated over many decades that our system is adaptive and it really rewards innovation. We have a free market system, a free market economy that rewards creativity and promotes growth. And so those advantages have pro proven to be sustained and enduring over time. We also have a very long acquisition cycle. Yes, we do. That they so, don't have. So clearly we need to be able to go faster. But one thing that I'll emphasize is we also need to drive whole nation solutions. And so, yes, we need to drive military modernization. I'll give a couple of examples for countering China. Uh, the first is demonstrating true joint all-domain operations in a sustained operational environment, including simulated contested environments that are applicable to the Indo-Pacific. The other is, of course, modernizing our strategic deterrent, investing in our nuclear triad, and especially modernizing our nuclear command, control, and communication systems that underlie that deterrent. And, and you, you say that that's important, that whole whole-of-nation thinking. Um, are we not doing that right now? We do it, but there is clearly room for systematic improvement. And I'll highlight a few areas. The first is just holistic situational awareness. 
we need to have a real data-driven set of insights into how China is competing systematically against us. And that's not just militarily. They also have aspirations to dominate economically, dominate in technologies and industries of the future, and, dem and uh, dominate diplomatically as well. China has been watching the Russia-Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. What are the lessons that they're taking from the invasion, from how uh, Russia has executed the war, and from the world's reaction to it? Yeah, China has very clearly been watching closely. They've been watching very closely how the United States and our allies have partnered together and the strength and resilience of our response. They are watching very closely to see what a determined population with a resolute leader and modern capable arms can do against an invading force. But we've been watching pretty closely too, and we're learning. And so first of all, we have seen the effectiveness of this concerted allied response, and we need to continue to engage in that way. We've also seen some of the limitations of things like sanctions, particularly as you look at this so-called friendship without limits between China and Russia. So those are not distinct problems. But I will say this, we need to demonstrate deterrence and make integrated deterrence very visible. And there's three ways that we're going to do that. One is that integrated holistic situational awareness that we talked about so we can actually craft whole of nation coordinated responses. The second is integrating heavily with our allies and partners and showing that in, a, in true operational scenarios, both economically and militarily. And the third way is really emphasizing how we can bring those whole of nation responses, not just through our defense establishment, but through organizations like commerce, treasury, and law enforcement. MITRE is an FFRDC. It's a federally funded research and development center. Um, briefly spell out what that means and your role in influencing government policy. Yeah, so a federally funded research and development center, these are private enterprises, but they're not-for-profit and chartered by the U.S. government. MITRE actually is not an FFRDC per se, but we operate six different FFRDCs for national security and the intelligence community, for homeland security, commerce, transportation, treasury, and others. And so that gives MITRE actually a unique perspective across both the national security and public sector areas of our government. FFRDCs give unfettered access to the government, to technology, systems engineering, and mission domain expertise that they don't typically get within government or the for-profit private sector. So when I talk about whole of nation, MITRE is actually deeply engaged in all of these areas of strategic competition across government. We're modernizing the nuclear deterrent. We're preparing for the next cyber threat. We're readying the nation for the next um, uh, a biosecurity threat. And so that's what we mean by solving problems for a safer world. All right. Kiyoki, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Next on Government Matters, a government agency is part of a global effort to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. One of the researchers leading the project joins us to talk about the complex challenge. We'll be right back. Carbon dioxide emissions are one of the main causes of climate change. And researchers are trying to find ways to remove it from the atmosphere. That includes researchers from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST. Pamela Chu is a group leader in the Materials Measurement Laboratory at NIST. 
Pam, welcome to the program. Thank you. So first explain this idea of direct air capture. How does it work? So direct air capture is a technology that we're working on to remove carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions um, from the atmosphere. One of the main challenges is that um, with um, human activity, a lot of these greenhouse gases and CO2 emissions have actually collected up in the atmosphere. Um, that's one of the major drivers for climate change that we're experiencing now. And what we really would like to do is remove those emissions and direct air capture is a way of doing it. Um, think of it of like being a plant. Um, we want to take the CO2 out, much like the plants do, and then we want to permanently store that CO2 someplace so that it no longer impacts our atmosphere. But how do you actually grab it out of the air? Like, what do you use to take it out of the air? So there are different um, solutions and materials that are, have been proven to take the CO2 out of the air. Uh, but one of the things that we're looking at is to develop better materials that do that process more efficiently and more effectively so it takes less energy and less um, and it'll cost less ultimately to do this process. And obviously there would be a big benefit of taking that out of the air. It would uh, alleviate some of the effects of, of climate change. What potential impact does this have if you're able to scale it? So yes, um, hopefully we can scale it. One of the the benefits is really to mitigate the climate change that we're seeing now because we have a lot of CO2 up in the atmosphere and that's what's impacting our climate today. Uh, as we go forward, we really need to mitigate these emissions. And so uh, as we can scale it up, we can hopefully bring our, our, our environment back to uh, before our emissions had such bad effect. And what role does NIST play in all this? Why, why is the federal government uh, involved in this? So NIST is really a, um, has a very specific niche of developing measurement science. Uh, so a lot of the measurement science that we develop um, pushes measurements forward uh, one step, two steps at a time uh, in order to improve our understanding of how things work. Uh, and it helps um, spur on innovation and new technologies. An example is uh, our push um, to develop better frequency and, and time measurements have really developed the um, global positioning system that we know today. So in the similar fashion, we are doing this for direct air capture. We're applying it to materials to understand how they might absorb CO2 and release that CO2 so that we can permanently store it. And so that hopefully we can spur on a new industry to effectively uh, capture the carbon dioxide. So Pam, what's the biggest challenge in actually getting this to work? Uh, the biggest challenge really is to scale it up to a level that's effective um, and have impact. Um, one of the challenges right now is there are prototype systems that are out there, but they're really only working at a level that's, um, we really need to improve it by six orders of magnitude. So is this really going to work? Are you optimistic that you can make this work that it can actually have an impact and that you're not actually increasing carbon emissions in trying to get it to work. So I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful that we can make it work. Um, it will take some research and development to really push this uh, technology forward. But examples of where we are today that we didn't anticipate being is where we are with solar energy and wind energy. You know, um, those are now uh, economically viable. Um, in the 70s, they weren't. So, you know, with time and with research, I think we can actually get to a point. 
um, where this will be effective. We have a lot of bright people working on it, and it's a really it's an all hands uh, effort right now to with between industry and the government to try and make this work. Tell me a little bit more about that and how you're working with industry and what their role is and and what your specific role is. So again, our specific role at NIST is to develop benchmark uh, measurement science and benchmark materials to help people compare what they are um, achieving in the research and development. So essentially what we do is provide a ruler for this system and so we can measure the success of new materials and new discoveries that other people are creating. Um, and then industry, how we work with industry is really we, we work with convening uh, stakeholders from industry and across government uh, to understand what the problems might be and how our measurements and standards that we develop can actually help the adoption of these um, new capabilities. Uh, for example, in the cement area and concrete, those are one of the biggest uh, emitters, uh, CO2 emitters, um, a major emitter of CO2. Um, and so what we're looking at is convening a consortium with industry and um, government to identify um, the challenges and the measurement challenges that are needed. You know, what we want to understand is the whole carbon footprint of this um, industry and then be able to address it um, to reduce that carbon footprint. Are you also collaborating with other agencies within the federal government? Uh, yes, we, we are looking to do that. You know, with our work um, in this consortium, we have a number of uh, other agencies that are uh, working with us. We also work with, um, attend a lot of the different agency um, uh, meetings to discuss our progress and, and understand what they, is needed from their perspective. Is this something that's going to require uh, more than just NIST, is this a whole of government kind of this, approach? This is this is absolutely a whole of government approach because there are all sorts of things that are needed to actually make this happen. We have to work on the science, we have to work on scaling it up and the engineering and the prototypes, and then we also have to work from the policy end um, to, to help um, spur that industry along. Well, it's a big problem, but I'm glad that you're on it. Thank you so much, Pam, for coming in. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on our homepage. We'll be back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, 
include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.